Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, six Atlanta's water six of Atlanta's watershed management facilities will be equipped with solar panels. That's right. It's the first phase of the Solar Atlanta program. We'll find out all about it. Also, City of Marietta police officers are being trained in the martial arts of jiu-jitsu. Y'all have heard that? I don't know what it is. We're going to find out. And the idea is being considered for departments across the country. We'll hear why and how the police training measure is being implemented. All that's just ahead. But first, this, as you just heard from NPR, the potential increase of infections from another COVID-19 variant is now the reason for a travel ban in effect for those non-U.S. citizens coming from South Africa and seven other African nations. The Omicron variant, as we've been calling it, President Joe Biden addressed the nation and talked about it just a few moments ago. The reason for the immediate travel ban is there were a significant number of cases, unlike any other country, well, the few around South Africa in the world. We needed time to give people an opportunity to say, get that vaccination now before it heads. It's going to move around the world. I think it's almost inevitable there will be at some point that uh, that strain here in the United States. Here in Georgia, state officials are paying attention. In a statement, Department of Public Health Commissioner Dr. Kathleen Toomey cited, quote, what is known is that COVID vaccination helps to stop transmission of infection, which prevents new variants from emerging. She went on to say vaccination is more important than ever with the emergence of this new variant and the holidays just around the corner. And related news, the Atlanta Public Schools now have an epidemiologist and a school-based health coordinator on staff. Juliana Prieto is the new district epidemiologist. And Tawana Harris is the new school-based health coordinator. In other news, tomorrow is the day for Atlanta election runoffs, in case you didn't know. The two candidates for Atlanta mayor are working to get their supporters to turn out after just about 25 percent of registered City of Atlanta voters cast a ballot earlier this month. WABE politics reporter Raul Bally tells us how. Up to this point, Andre Dickens and Felicia Moore have both been focusing on getting their supporters to vote early. Dickens says he's also been focusing on social media. We're getting a, a lot of social media influencers, people that know, uh, that have a large following, to really post things about it's time to vote, it's time to vote, and voting day is November 30th. Moore says part of her focus is getting her supporters back to the polls. I am doing this every time I run into people, is making sure that they know when to vote. So I quiz them. I say, you know, when is the election day? Some people know, some people don't. I tell them that, that we want people to go back to the polls because the people who, go back, who can get their people back out to the polls is going to make a difference in this race. Also on the ballot, the runoff for Atlanta City Council President 
and several city council and school board races. Raul Bally, WABE News. And a programming note to WABE will have a special election coverage tomorrow night starting at 8. Down in Glen County, commissioners are closer to approving a reflection area in memory of Ahmaud Arbery, near the same neighborhood where he was murdered in coastal Brunswick. WABE's Lily Oppenheimer has more. Nearly $20,000 would go towards the Arbery Memorial, part of an overall $100,000 improvement project in the city's Madge Merritt Park. The county's finance committee pushed the recommendation forward one day before a jury found Travis McMichael, his father Greg, and neighbor William Bryan guilty of murdering Arbery. Photos showing an idea of what the Arbery Memorial area would look like include a trellis with a swing bench surrounded by flowers in a secluded area of the park. Commissioners are set to vote on the park memorial this Thursday. Lily Oppenheimer, WABE News. And finally, some sports news now. While UGA Bulldogs and Atlanta and Alabama fans are gearing up for this Saturday's SEC Championship at Mercedes-Benz Stadium, it's the second round of the NCAA's Division I football championship, the subdivision playoffs, which means Kennesaw State will travel to East Tennessee State in Johnson City, Tennessee. Now, Kennesaw State advanced after beating Davison 48-21 this past Saturday. And finally... Call Lee Elder a pioneer or trailblazer. The golfing pro broke the color barrier at the Masters Golf Tournament in Augusta in 1975. Elder died last night. He was 87 years old. It was the 1975 Masters when Elder, yes, became the first black golfer to play in that tournament. A 2020 documentary marking the 45th anniversary included Elder reflecting on the historic achievement. I'm telling you, that is the most sought-after thing that a pro golfer could want to be able to drive down Magnolia Lane for the first time, coming to compete in the Masters Golf Tournament. Although Elder missed the cut in 1975, he would play at the Masters five more times. Last year, and certainly overdue, Augusta National announced the funding of a women's golf program and scholarships in Lee Elder's name at Payne College, which was located also in Augusta. It's such an enjoyable position for me to be in because it... uh, Certainly going to give me the opportunity to help young people fulfill their dream like I had when I started. Again, Lee Elder, the first black professional golfer to play in the Masters down there in Augusta, Georgia, died last night. He was 87 years old. Remarkable man. Talked to him a couple of times. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And you're listening to Closer Look. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Let's talk solar. City of Atlanta's watershed management facilities will now have six equipped with 
solar panels. It's the first of the Solar Atlanta program. Now, how will this impact the city's efforts to combat climate change as well as some other issues? Well, let's bring in Atlanta's chief sustainability officer, Shelby Busso. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Let's begin here. A listener probably saying, OK, Rose, my first question is, what exactly is her role as the Atlanta's chief sustainability officer? In other words, what do you do? <laughs> the question I get often. Really? Um, it is. Um, you know, I think sustainability means so much to so many people. And in Atlanta, the conversation has really evolved into a resilience um, mm-hmm. a resilience topic. And so I, I run the Office of Resilience, which is nested within the Office of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion in the city of Atlanta. Um, we have several different focus areas and a a wide berth of work focusing on everything from reducing food insecurity across the city by ensuring um, 85% of Atlantans have access to fresh food within a half mile of their home to more of the climate related initiatives like our Solar Atlanta program that really span um, multiple areas, transportation, building work, um, municipal operations, waste diversion, urban agriculture, city planning, you know, you name it, we kind of try and stick our nose in and, and have some influence when it comes to the impact the city of Atlanta can have. So you pretty much can work with any department within city government because sustainability, based on all those areas you just mentioned, I mean, it intersects in pretty much everything, every mode of operation for the city, correct? It really does. Um, and it's, it's really an honor to be in this position and to have the opportunity to really have um, every day be different, you know, because we do get to work and highlight, lift up the work of all the departments across the city. When you came in um, as the chief sustainability officer, did you have to take an assessment across all these departments? What did that look like? I did. I mean, sometimes um, I've even joked with people that I think the first year of my job was really just making friends and building up that trust again across the departments. And it was so fascinating to listen to the work and really have it resonate with the way that I define sustainability and the way that our office has lifted this up to focus on marginalized communities across the city to know that our work impacts people first and foremost. You mentioned concerns. What were some of the concerns? Did you hear concerns from some of these departments as well? What'd you hear? I think so. I mean, sometimes it's just a consistent definition of how, how does the department um, affect and and make an impact on climate change mm-hmm. um you know sometimes it's easy to get just uh in the groove of of doing what operationally the city needs to do to survive and operate efficiently um, but as we took a moment listened to their challenges and um, tried to identify ways to collaborate there were many before we move into this program as it relates to the, the watershed uh, management facilities, let's step back a little bit because, as you know, this year with that major international conference that took place, um, when now everyone's sounding the alarm, and, of course, earlier there was a report from the United Nations um, that was not <laughs> favorable, but it wasn't a surprise to anyone. We've been hearing this for scientists, from people for so long about how critical we are now. It's, some will say it's a crisis in terms of the global impact of climate change and then how that trickles down to not only just here in the U.S., but then to Georgia and then to cities like Atlanta. Why do you, why do you think, through your personal lens, it still has taken so long for this sort of one agree, one everyone agreeing that, okay, now something's got to be done if we want to save this planet from pretty much 
becoming one big ball of fire, which is what some scientists have said that's coming. I don't know in our lifetime, but you know. Right. No, I mean, it's, it's certainly a concern and it has been a concern for a very long time. Um, the city of Atlanta has consistently been committed to uh, meeting the commitments of the Paris Agreement. Um, we also have been made made a commitment all the way back in 2017 to 100% clean energy by 2035. And many other cities have been doing that. Um, I'm glad to hear that there's more attention on these conversations, but the work has been going on for a very long time. And, um, and I think what we heard out of the COP26 conference was really that um, local action is important and imperative. We are the closest to the people that we represent in the city and or even local municipal level. And I think we have an opportunity and I'm really hopeful that we can we can actually all come together um, at this moment to prevent that ball of fire. I don't I don't think that we uh, have gone past the point of redemption. I think we can make it work. And um, we are doing that, I think, pretty well in Atlanta. And while researchers and scientists have sound they've been sounding this alarm for a long time now, but just this year, it seems like that this is really the year that they want to start pushing a more global effort, which obviously as you just talked about is key. Someone listening may say, well, okay, what can I do just as a, a resident? Do you get that question a lot from people that say, well, what can I do? What would be those tips? I do. I mean, I get, I get texts almost daily from people. Can I recycle this? Where does this go? How do I get solar on my rooftop? Um, and I, there are certainly things that people can do individually. And I think there's also the need for a larger global movement, which we're seeing in a lot of partnerships and collaborations like the American Cities Climate Challenge and other things so that we're heading in this path and walking in the right direction together. Um, one I'll mention locally here in Atlanta is the Solarize program mm -hmm. is something if people have the ability or interest in learning more about that work, um, there's another another day to sign up um, and see if your rooftop could hold solar. Well, you know, it's interesting because just a few years ago, we had we started doing programming about this. And the main question, the main concern we heard was it's so expensive. But now it seems like there are programs that are available, particularly for homeowners, because it, it originally it was like, oh, my God, if you get solar panels, it's going to cost you a ton of money. And depending right. on what part of the state you live in, would it really be effective? Yes, exactly. Um, it depends even what neighborhood you're in and even your lot positioning as to whether or not it would be feasible, but you can get free assessments to just see if there's a, a goal you want to set for the future if you're a homeowner and interested in that. Um, and honestly, you know, the city of Atlanta wants to support anybody who wants it mm -hmm. uh, to, to have the opportunity to have uh, solar on their home, even if they think that it's outside of their normal budget range. Um, we would like to create more programming and opportunities around uh, access to that type of energy. Speaking of goals, there's the Clean Energy Atlanta, which is the city's plan to, as they put it, equitably transition to 100% clean energy by 2035. So I want to ask you through your lens, I know you work for the city, because if you say something else, maybe they will like, wait, what? Is that feasible? I mean, you're the chief sustainability officer, Shelby Busso, that 20 35 go 100% clean energy is that feasible can we get to that it's absolutely feasible um you know we started this process in 2017 with a simple resolution and we didn't know if it could 
be achievable. Um, we spent years planning and we are in the process of even updating that plan now. We have a robust uh, clean energy advisory board that is actually even community led. Um, we wanted voices and experiential um, expertise valued on that board. So we have real people telling us really what they can do, uh, what is best for their communities and what else the city needs to do to step it up because the city itself really only holds about 7% of the energy electricity use in the city of Atlanta. So we can make our buildings as efficient as possible, but we're really going to need external support and momentum and a lot of innovation to make this work. Well, that's two things I want to get to. You said a lot of external support, then you mentioned innovation. That external support, what does that look like? So, you know, we have things like the Atlanta Better Buildings Challenge that have worked mm -hmm. in the past where, you know, we look to the commercial real estate sector and said, what works for you? How do you make your buildings the most efficient that they can be? And of course, they're interested in doing that as well. Um, so we really will need every individual who lives in the city of Atlanta, every business that operates in the city of Atlanta to take an interest in this and collaborate on coming up with those strategies. Well, then innovation. I think I may know the answers now. I guess about a year ago, Closer Look went over to Georgia Tech for their wonderful, uh, they call it a living building, which just was just incredible. Now, all of Atlanta can't experience what Georgia Tech has over there. But innovation wise, what are we talking about? Yeah, the Candida building is an excellent example of innovation and practice. And, and you're right, not everybody can build that in their backyard for sure, but they can learn from it. Um, it is accessible to the public. And I think something you can even um, check out with a virtual tour online. So that type of innovation is exciting. Um, in the city of Atlanta, we also have an innovation, an office of innovation. Um, mm -hmm. And we work with them on every project, everything from, you know, some of our watershed management um, work and recycling bins on the street or, um, pickup schedules and in, in our urban ag sector as well. There's a lot of potential for innovation at every level. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Shelby Busso. She's Atlanta's chief sustainability officer. Now we're going to talk about the, the watershed management facilities you have now. How many watershed facilities are there? Are we talking about in general? So um, if I want to back up for a second and talk about the solar Atlanta program, it has been around for a few years now and we do have um, 14 facilities across the city that are already powered by solar. Mm -hmm. um, we will have three more this year, and those are in parks and recreation, fire and rescue, and then also just some general city um, asset management properties. And those we're really excited about, and we are more than doubling that production with this new additional um, set from Watershed. And I think the goal really will be to have um, more than 14 installations and uh that like i said will, will double our production of uh of solar in the city of atlanta on our facilities and um through the solar atlanta program we actually use a really innovative um, program structure that allows us to keep iterating and keep assessing new buildings um we hope to have every single building in the city of Atlanta solarized, that may not be possible. So we'll get as many as we can. And this is that that first expansion phase. Well, let's talk money. And I know you're not the per. Well, you may be because you have your own department. But we know that obviously this is for energy costs in terms of savings. But in terms mm -hmm. of implementation, 
Any idea of the price tag on that? Actually, it's zero. Um, so our innovative program, it's called a SEPA um, in Georgia. It's the same as a, a power purchase agreement in other states, but ours is a solar energy procurement agreement, which is a new-ish um, way of saying that we have a third-party partner. Cherry Street Energy is our partner in this program, and they actually own and operate the solar panels, the installations mm -hmm. themselves. We purchase the power from them. So instead of uh, buying from Georgia Power, we we buy from Cherry Street and we let them use our rooftop for that on-site production. And it just makes the cost of our electricity predictable over the next 20 years, which is the term of our contract. So it costs the city nothing up front. Wow. And all we do is buy the power we use and we have right-sized those installations so that they are producing um, an amount of money or amount of power that will um, balance our budget. And Shiba, let's back up for, you know, I always try to present every segment as though there's someone listening that may not have never even heard of what we're talking about. So someone listening says, okay, well, how would that work? Well, you, you still will use electricity in some of these buildings, correct? You can't just have no electricity, but you're it's sort of a, like a hybrid, right? Or will you? That's only, right. Okay. Yeah. We are we are still hooked up to Georgia Power and we still we <laughs> purchase that. Turn the lights out at all the facilities. <laughs> <laughs> we do not, but it is it is great and a, a nice comfort for us to have that redundancy to know if the power did go out, we have we have a backup system there too. Um, but we are connected to the grid still. I have a question from a listener who wants to know: There are other cities in in Georgia that are doing this, and is this something that you feel that other that will be become sort of, I guess, the trend here nationwide? Yes. Um, the answer is yes. There are other cities and counties in Georgia. Um, there are several that I work with consistently and, um, and those everywhere from Savannah to Fulton County with its overlap um, to Decatur, where I happen to live. Um, you know, everybody works together to try to first set these goals, have conversations about what's realistic um, and then learn from each other, um, share our contracts, tell them our experience with um, with our partners. And it has been great to see it spread. And Shelby, is the ultimate, I guess, assessment, is, is it something more than just, you know, energy cost savings? You know, what do you use? What other metrics do you use to sort of gauge the effectiveness of this move here? So, you know, as we were talking about earlier with the climate impact work and the consistent goals, we talk in carbon offsets often when globally we're talking about climate. Um, so we do measure those equivalencies. Um, and I think the production of our current facilities so far um, and what we expect to see is over 4 million pounds of, of CO2 that's been uh, avoided because of this wow. on-site production. Um, it's over 30,000 trees. It's 400-ish cars off the road. I mean, we can talk about it in a lot of different ways mm -hmm. to make sure it's it's clear that this work is helpful for our environment. It's also helpful for our budget-making process to know what it's going to cost to operate the city of Atlanta and to know that those savings are then offset um, or are able to be diverted into another space that provides some social services to the city of Atlanta. And before I let you go, Shelby, I want to talk about transportation, because you mentioned transportation was a part of this as well. Um, how do you see in that sector what the city of Atlanta is doing? We know that MARTA in itself is looking at, you know, what they call clean buses here. But in terms of 
the city of Atlanta. What are you all doing? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a, a focus of our work with the American Cities Climate Challenge. There are 25 cities across the country that have um, committed to further greenhouse gas emissions reductions, and Atlanta is one of those cities. And we focused on the built environment, which we talked about things like renewables and energy efficiency. And then in the transportation sector, we have worked closely with our Department of Transportation to start adding in these climate um, metrics to some of their work, to be innovative about materials going into sidewalks, to to think about how um, certain bus only lanes are, are gonna save on air emissions. And then also how to work collaboratively with our local transportation management associations to think about um, how businesses are encouraging people mm-hmm. to uh, get to work effectively. And we know right now that's a hot topic. And Shelby, I have a, a, a question from a listener who says they're a small business owner. Do you all have, sounds like you do, but do you all have incentives for small business owners who might, who own their building, who might be interested in learning more about the solar panels? Absolutely. I would encourage anybody to go to 100ATL.com. That's got the full list of our information on clean energy programming um, and our contact information is there as well. Shelby, give them a good deal. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> They're a closer look listener. <laughs> I'm just a resource. <laughs> Atlanta's Chief Sustainability Officer, Shelby Busso. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Coastal continues now. This is 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. The city of Marietta. Well, the police officers are being trained in the martial arts of jiu-jitsu, and the idea is being considered for departments throughout the nation. So what led to implementing this? Well, let's talk to Major Jake King. He's with the Marietta Police Department as well as the originator of the program. He joins me now. Major King, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for having me today. Uh, let's go back a little bit. Uh, how long have you been in law enforcement? Actually, 24 years now, all with the city of Marietta. I've been here. Actually, I started in a kids program at Marietta when yeah. I was 15 years old. 24 yeah. years. Let me ask you this. Can you go back to your rookie training and what was that like? Um, how would you assess that for what you didn't know then and what you know now? Oh, man, it is <laughs> I knew nothing. <laughs> I knew nothing. Even the training they were giving me, I still didn't know anything. Uh, and it was quite the eye-opening experience. Regardless of where you come from, mm-hmm. it's just an eye-opening experience. You know, obviously with last year, and it certainly wasn't the first year in terms of, you know, national conversations for some outrage, concern, whatever you want to call it, about policing and I think I've asked everyone in law enforcement this question, and, and it varies in terms of how they define or if they even like the definition of what we call community policing. Uh, what's your lens on that, that definition there, Major King? 
Well, one reason for me that I've stuck with Marietta for all these years is I started in 98 and there was a chief that came in 96 who believed in community policing and he started it here in 1996. For, so for me, I've grown up in different versions of what community policing was. Back in the, early, the late 90s, it was bike patrol units that, that cycled around and, and worked in low-income places and shook hands and did all this other stuff. But it really comes down to working with the community and building relationships and having transparency within the community and open lines of communication with everybody from faith-based to community leaders to your schools within your, your area all the way down to school bus drivers, like school bus drivers, I'm telling you, are a massive resource when you want to find out, you know, what's going on. Um, so, man, it's really about building relationships, working within the community, but you got to have transparency with them, too. And that's where the open lines of communication come from. To me, that's what community policing is. We're working together. So that's when it works for you. Um, what do you think is a misperception about it or through your lens, what's not working? And this is just through your through your viewpoint or you know you you also you represent Marietta but you know I want to ask you just personally well I think what I've personally seen is where departments will have a one time a year event where they invite people to and some people from the community will show up mm -hmm. generally not a lot of people but some people will show up in the community and then they believe that that is community policing because they had a, a event mm -hmm. let's say even let's just say they had an event four times a year. Mm -hmm. Most of them don't. Mm -hmm. They view that as community policing, and that's not what it is. Having an event for people to come to or going to events, it's an everyday process is what community policing is. And that's where I think a big fault has come where people miss the mark. Like they think it's a one time a year or twice a year, having national night out. Oh yeah, we do national night out. Well, that is great. What do you do the other 364 days a year to build relationships in the community? When we talk about standard operating procedures, and I know I asked you about when you were a rookie and you mentioned that was, what, 24 years ago. Um, yeah. Through your lens, has enough been done in terms of maybe police departments really looking at, reevaluating? I know there's some programs, some national programs now where there's help for police departments in you know, re sort of evaluating their standard operating procedures as it relates to when they're answering, you know, on call, when they're going to calls. Uh, through your lens, is that are we seeing a trend or more departments you think starting to look at that? And particularly with only, and particularly with de-escalation techniques. Only in the past year, maybe eighteen months max. Mm. And a, a friend of mine said this to me, and I know I know it's kind of cliche, but he said this to me and it stuck. And he was like, "Law enforcement will be drug kicking and screaming into the future mm. because." change is difficult for them mm -hmm. change is and why has it gotten to this point to where law enforcement is going to look at making some changes why, why did it have to get here mm -hmm. you know and i was a witness to it 24 years of being involved in it i saw everything that went on in the media things that went on in our city things that went on in atlanta i had a front row seat to every bit of that and my simple answer is no there is not enough being done are we starting to change? Yeah, I see it. And this program is making a huge change and I can prove it. However, it's still not enough. When new officers or, or rookies or, or someone transfers into the department, comes from another department, do you get a chance to talk to them to get a feel for kind of where their head is at? And, and you talked about obviously your approach in law enforcement, but do you all do that to get a gauge of, of who these new officers will be and the ones that are coming in new? 
Yeah, we most departments, I say most, not all, we have a very extensive hiring process that, inco- that involves psychological backgrounds, polygraph testing, oral interview panels. But every person now for the past three years has been hired. I have a personal meeting with them on day two. Mm-hmm. Like there is two new officers that started today. I will see them tomorrow. And I asked them their background, their life experiences. Were they in the military? Did they go to college? Where did they go to the high school at? Where did they grow up? Did they grow up in the north? Did they come to the south? Why are you here today? And it really is interesting to hear the different dynamics because you get every part of life. You know, people that come in. I'm here because I want to make a difference. I'm here because this is what my family did. I'm here because of military and I, and I like this style. Um, so it really we've done a good job with it in a culture is a huge thing because you you mentioned like policies and procedures Mm -hmm. that's words on paper a culture is totally different and and at marietta and the reason what i'm saying i've been here for so long is because our culture just breeds community service well let me ask you how diverse is the city of marietta police department through your lens and and when you diversity i know that that people have their own check boxes (laughs) you know but Pretty diverse, needs improvement, not bad. I think we can always improve. I tell you one thing I've been excited about, and I didn't pick up on this till about three months ago, that our Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu program, training program, Mm -hmm. we have doubled the amount of females we have hired this last year than we ever have in the history of Marietta. Doubled the amount. Well, let's talk about that because that's at the core of, of, so let's back up a little bit because there was an AJC article uh, not too long ago that talked about sort of the, the impetus for this here. So you, let me ask you this, are you a martial arts as growing up? We were like, we were, mar- we were all martial arts experts, you know, when you 10 and 11, you you're watching all those movies, but are you a martial yeah. arts guy? I was not, I was not my whole life. Like I did not, I, I watched karate kid. I, I could do now that. That does not really. count. <laughs> no it does not count and no i had no martial arts growing up at all really matter of fact i didn't even venture into it till about four and a half years ago ever in my entire life what led you to that a couple things um one i always knew i was in good physical shape Mm -hmm. um i was a firearms instructor so i was good in the use of force and, and a taser instructor and all of that but i'd never had any real defensive tactics training at least is what we call it Mm -hmm. All I had is what the department provided me. So I always felt like I was lacking. And then some other guys that I knew here were talking about, hey, we're going to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. You should try it. And I wanted to, but I'll be honest with you, I was a little scared. I thought I'd be embarrassed, you know, the first time I showed up. I didn't know. I have no idea what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I know what I'm doing, but I'll tell you, I had no idea really what I was doing at all. You know, And so that's what brought me into it before. Let's go back then. There was in the, in that AJC article, which sort of chronicled one of your officers in a situation. Um, for our listeners who may not be familiar with it, you pick it up from there. So the AJC did a, did a really good arc, article. It was partnered with uh, the Marshall Project, who who came here, actually trained with us. Uh, he went went a day and spent a full day training with us out there. And it was covering what the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu program has done for the Marietta Police Department Mm -hmm. that we've had now for over three years. We've had this program and in Marietta, it's a mandatory program. If you're hired, you're required to go five months twice a week to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu training. Really? Now, yeah. So people ask, well, well, why? Mm -hmm. Why? Why have you chosen Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and why are you making them go to this? And it's very simple. Jiu-Jitsu is actually the Japanese translation is the gentle art. Mm -hmm. 
Jiu-Jitsu is the gentle art of controlling people. And if you really look back at a lot of our controversial shootings in our country, Mm -hmm. a lot of them, the officers, officers, more than one, had the suspect down on the ground at one point in time, and the suspect was able to get back up. Mm -hmm. Now, seeing those and then seeing some of the stuff that gone on, I'm watching this through me learning jujitsu. And I was like, one jujitsu officer could have professionally controlled that person down on the ground. And the rest of this story would not have happened. Therefore, either this an individual grabbing an officer's gun or what another escalating into something more deadly more. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Matter of fact, my coach and I teach a class called Alternate Endings. Mm-hmm. It's really the name. I, and I didn't come up with a fancy name. I'm thinking of like books and movies. And we will show real life police videos, tragedies that happen, tragedies that they're all tragedies. And then we will pause and say right here, if if that was a jujitsu officer, they could have done this simple technique. It's nothing fancy. The simple technique that could have ended the rest of this video happening. And that's what really prompted me into, look, we expect certain amount of professionalism and training out of our police officers, but in the state of Georgia, they haven't raised the number of hours required for a police officer to be training since the 80s, Hmm. the 1980s. I went through the police police academy in 1998 and it was 420 hours. Today, it is 420 hours. So this, so we haven't increased training for our police officers at all. Mm-hmm. And so we're expecting this new product, this better product, this more professional product, but we're not giving the men and women of law enforcement any tools, education, or training to do it. So how do we expect that to work? How have officers responded? And some have said, well, you know, when we're there and we know every situation is, of course, different. Um, and someone's saying, well, how do they know, do you, beyond just the physical training, you know, what, do you all take them through, and look, there may be a split second to make a decision here, Major King, let's be really clear. Right. What other, I guess, psychological training or, or, you know, what other training are you all offering to them in terms of being able to make that decision? Now, you, you and I both know listeners hearing this will have a whole lot of questions, which we probably won't have time to get to, but you can understand the concerns here on both sides. Being able to make a decision, you want to de-escalate a situation. You've been there, you know. Oh yeah, for sure. So we at Marietta have invested a lot in use of force decision-making. And when I say use of force, it's everything from grabbing somebody's wrist all the way up to the use of deadly force of firearms or, or, or mm-hmm. anything, anything in there in between. And we spend a lot of time with that. We have simulators that we can use here. We, we use stuff that's called simunitions, which is force on force training, mm-hmm. where you shoot these powdered things at each other, kind of like a very, very high tech paintball system. Yes, ma'am. No, go ahead. And we invested a lot in that decision making process. What we didn't realize, too, is that we would create training scars as well. And this is something relatively new. So for like example, we call them training scars. Like mm-hmm. the, that is where we didn't realize what we were training you to wasn't to the level or it caused a, an adverse reaction. And what I mean by that is a lot of the scenarios officers would go through as soon as they handled the suspect, we as instructors, and this is nationwide, this mm-hmm. isn't anything just for us, would say, okay, out of roll, end the scenario, stop. 
Well, then we started seeing that officers would get involved in something. And whenever they had the suspect down or under control, they didn't know what to do next because we didn't train them what to do next. We always ended the scenario, mm-hmm. you know, and did a debriefing. So through jujitsu and, and, you know, it dovetails back into it is you realize it's one of the most respectful things you've ever done. Respectful, like the martial art itself is respect for each other. And you learn because I, I ask chiefs this question all the time, sheriffs, chiefs, whoever. I say, when did you hire somebody in the past year that's that's never been in a fight in their entire life? Have you hired somebody that you know it? You don't have to ask them. You just know it. Every one of them will raise their hand and say, yeah, I have. I said, OK. So you put them through the state required training and they don't do any hands on stuff during the state required training. They go through 32 hours, four days of defensive tactics, but they never get to practice it. Mm-hmm. They just they just learn things. but They never get mm-hmm. to apply it. So they, they haven't been involved in any scuffles in. And then you put them out on the road in uniform and they go through training and they always have somebody with them that's relatively experienced, a training officer for the most part. And then all of a sudden they're on their own. And the first time they get in a fight, their life depends on it. And they've never been in a fight before in their entire life. Mm-hmm. What do you think the reaction is going to be? Well, you know, well, you, we know the answer. Well, yeah, we know the answer to that reaction. You can go to YouTube and you can see the reaction. And it's usually chaos and screaming and there's profanity involved and punching and kicking all the way up to escalation of force. We found over three years now through jujitsu, our officers, by the time they graduate a program, have been through 150, right around 150 spars. They've fought somebody else respectfully mm-hmm. 150 times. And the whole time they were respectful to each other. And at the end, they shake hands and they're respectful to each other. So we have videos of our officers getting in scuffles with people after they handcuffing them. They're patting them on the back saying, you're going to be okay. Just calm down. If you just join us, I'm in conversation with Major Jake King. He's, he's with the Marietta Police Department. And we're talking about the Im- implementation of the three years now of their jujitsu program. Um Let's go back a little bit because why this, why this Brazilian form of jujitsu and martial arts as opposed to another form? And there are lots of forms. There's lots of forms of arts out there. Lots of them. If you take the top, let's say the top five martial arts, which is going to be Muay Thai, um, kickboxing, MMA is its own version and boxing. And then you have jujitsu. It's number five Mm -hmm. as the most popular martial arts um, in, in the world in there. The problem with the first four that I named, they teach punching and kicking. Mm -hmm. Society has said as a whole, they really don't like to see their officers punch and kick people anymore. They just don't. Well, yeah, I mean, you can understand that, though, I major. I I totally understand it. Brazilian jiu-jitsu teaches no punching or kicking, zero, none whatsoever. They teach how to defend punches and kicks, control people, take them to the ground and control them. So that's the only martial art out there that doesn't teach punching and kicking. Mm -hmm. And it's also one of the most effective. It also won the first two UFC championships. Look at you. (laughs) I didn't know that. Um, Let me ask you (laughs) this. So this is going to be, so this is now required of all of your officers. Mandatory. All the officers, Mm -hmm. no matter what level, or just those who are going to be, quote, on the beat, I guess, out in the community. It's been required now for over three years. For every new hire, we require them to go through five months. Every other officer can voluntarily attend. So we're a 140 person department, right? 145 if you count our part-times and right about a hundred have been trained in the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu art. Have you, so not everyone. Okay. Have you had any concerns from the community? Have you heard from community leaders, anyone with some issues or, or, you know, maybe asking for, okay, 
How have you all assessed then the fact that you have de-escalated a situation in a sense and you were able to, you know, control, as you all put it, a, a suspect without any other additional injuries, all that? You keep record of that. How do you all, and you have police reports, but do you all have to, do the officers have to list if they use the jujitsu maneuver in any of this? They do, they do within reason. It just depends on our use of force, which can vary from department to department. But mm-hmm. our use of force is you have to report if you use anything above soft hand controls, like just holding on to somebody. If you cause an injury to somebody, or of course you use taser, pepper spray, and anything anything above that, you have to. So we've been tracking our data now for over three years, and we've had two universities come in and vet our data independently to to, to confirm it. Um, and one of the most interesting things is we've reduced injuries to suspects by 53 mm-hmm. percent over half. We cut it in half. You all haven't had any complaints or, or you know, official complaints of, of excessive force related to this, to the martial arts techniques that you all use. And you haven't had any of those. Is that what you're saying? Not at all. In three years. This is this is what's amazing. In, in three years, we have. Not had one officer sued for use of force that was a jujitsu officer. We have not had a jujitsu officer injured in a fight yet either, because we reduced injuries to our officers by 49%, let alone injuries to suspects by 53%. We also reduced our taser usage by 27%. And And this is three, three years worth of data, and two colleges verified it for us. And how, what's the budget? I, I guess now you're not the budget guy, but there, there are a lot, there's a line item for jujitsu training. And how much has that been costing you all these three years? Here's it, it, here's another part of it. So we do have a line item for jujitsu training. We have yet to pay one dime of taxpayer money. Really? From us. Because we've been able to get de-escalation grants to cover it because it's the epitome of de-escalation. We are applying currently again for a 2021 de-escalation grant. In the beginning, we were using uh, asset forfeiture money, drug seizure money or converted mm-hmm. money. That's what we paid for. Now, here, here, here's the amazing part of it. Your jujitsu gyms aren't expensive, expensive to go to. It costs $10 every time an officer walks through the door to get a training session. $10. So our mandatory five-month program is $400 per person. Four hundred bucks, so it's, and they get top-notch de-escalation training on how to control people and handle them, and they're calm, cool, and collected when they get into scuffles with people. Major King, as we wrap up, if you had an opportunity, maybe you have, you talk to other departments who say to you, "Well, come on," they they call you Jake. They say, "Jake, come on, is this really going to be helpful for my department?" What do you tell them? I tell them it's the you. The number one thing you should be looking for right now, because society has said, look, you better produce a more professional, respectful officer on how to deal with people and how to handle people. This escalation of force, just because the officer doesn't know what they need to do, that's not necessarily their fault. They're doing the best they can with what they knew at the time. We have failed as heads of agencies not to give them the training, education and tools that they need to produce a better officer. We shouldn't be defunding the police in any ways. I know that's a term. We mm-hmm. should be funding their education and training so that we can produce better police officers. We need to come out there and, and check y'all out. Major Jake King with the City of Marietta Police Department as well. as the, I guess you're the originator of the jujitsu program at the department. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Thank you. You have a great day. You too now.
And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder, let me know your thoughts on today's programs. In particular, I really like to hear them. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.